Hello, bookworms. Welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where I get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite books. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and today I'm talking to author Jacqueline DeForge. When Jacqueline told me her all-time favorite book is Jane Eyre, I had to physically hold my eyeballs in my head, lest they roll out of my skull and onto the ground. I have never gotten why so many people love this book so much. But then we started talking, and I can't wait for you to hear Jacqueline convince me that Jane Eyre may really and truly be the best book ever. Hi, Jacqueline. Welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Hi there. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book that I thought would be chosen right off the bat, and you're the first one to choose Jane Eyre, so we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to chatting with you about it. Me too, because my opinion has changed as of this reading, but we're going to get into that in a few minutes. I want to ask you how you got to Jane Eyre in the first place. What was your reading life like when you were a kid? My reading life, um, I don't remember not being able to read. I think I learned to read pretty early. Um, and it was the nineties, so there wasn't much to do other than, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I read all the time, all the time. And I was such a, uh, I was such a sensitive kid and very, uh, very Jane Eyre like, and I, uh, I liked it being quiet and I didn't really want to like run around and play with the other kids so much. I just kind of wanted to be in my book. And so books were always like a really, they were a really safe place for me. Um, but yeah, they've been there. They've been there from the beginning. My earliest memories are, are book related. I, Little house on the prairie oh, and God. things like that, you know, Little house in the big woods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can, that sound you hear right now is every one of my listeners nodding along going, yeah. Yep. Ah, yes. (laughs) If you didn't like a book, will you finish it? Or do you force yourself to finish books all the time? Or will you abandon a book you dislike? I abandon books. You do? I am an abandoner. I I also abandon poems that I write, stories that I write. Um, If something isn't, if something gives me that feeling of like, I am tired and bored, then I won't, I won't do it. Um, but that, and I think that helps me keep reading because otherwise I would just get stuck. I've tried to keep going sometimes, but then I'm like, oh, I would, I sure feel like reading, but I got to finish that book. I don't want to read. That's not fun. (laughs) No, it's not fun. And it slows you down. It does. Let's just, you know, pick up the pace here. Tell me about what you write. Sure. Uh, I am a poet. I just had my my first full-length poetry collection come out called Danger Flower. Um, And so I write very sort of like strange, lyrical, fairy tale-ish poems about bodies and motherhood and sexuality and nature um, and uh, stuff like that. Reverse mermaids, Tamagotchis, Um, in addition, I also have a a picture book that I wrote about being an introverted kid and that's called, why are you so quiet? We're going to talk more about that in the, um, Patreon section, but I want to ask 
because I don't know what this means. What's a reverse mermaid? You know how a mermaid is like, like a fish bottom and a, and a, a, a purse, like a, a lady top. Yeah. It's the opposite. So it's like fish top lady bottom. <laughs> Wait, I have a pic. I know the, the listeners won't be able to see, but I'm holding up a picture right now um, by the brilliant. This is uh, the book called Devolution by the brilliant poet Kim Goldberg. And she has a reverse mermaid on the cover of her book. And yeah, it's it's a little creepy and weird, but I feel like it's kind of like fairy tale-ish and, and morbid and strange and mystical. What do they do? I don't, well, I don't Can know. Can they swim? I don't know. I've ne- <laughs> <laughs> if they were, if they existed, would they walk? Would yeah. they swim? I don't know. It's a mystery. I've never thought of the concept of reverse mermaids, but of course, now that you're saying that, I'm thinking of all of these half creature things that have existed throughout mythology. And isn't it funny that if they exist in one form, they're kind of hypersexualized. But if you just reverse that, which I guess <laughs> biologically speaking, that should exist too. If one exists, then the other should exist, right? Like the the sister yeah. of the mermaid could also look like the reverse mermaid. But the sexiness does not reverse necessarily. Right. And it it wigs me out a little bit to think about it. Is that why you decided to write about it? Because the immediate thought is yes. Yeah. Why am I? Why do I feel weird about this? <laughs> that sort of like weird, like what feeling? That's yeah. what I try. That's what I try to express in my poetry. I, uh, among other feelings, but that like, I find that like when there's something that has some like symbolic underlying meaning that I don't quite understand yet, gives me this little like, what, uh-huh. you know, and then I, I hold on to it. And so I, I weave these weird images into my poems, but, and they always end up meaning more than I thought they did. It, it ends up being something about transformation and seeing the world in a different way and like what would it mean to to look at the world through the eyes of a fish instead of a human's eyes and things like that I think it opens doors in the psyche when you can engage with pictures like that you know do you read what you write for the most part or do you try to really read outside of the genres you're interested in writing in I I read pretty widely. I've been reading a lot of poetry over the the course of the pandemic because I found that it uh, is just kind of exactly like the the literary experience I'm looking for right now. Like I can I can dive into a poem and be there for a while, but but I can come out of it just as quickly. And I think there's a sort of like maybe I feel a little hyper vigilant in the world. Like I, I, it's hard to sink into a novel the way it used to be for me. Did you discover sense. any new to you poets in the last, oh, how long have we been in this pandemic? 20, 30, 40 years? I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. I have a pile here. Cause I, I just did, I just, um, Kim, Kim Goldberg was new to me. I, I just, uh, facilitated a panel with her recently and she was wonderful. Moving to Climate Change Hours by by uh, Ross Balot was wonderful. And also um, Claire Caldwell's Gold Rush was really, really great. That's a that's a book I just 
read recently. And Claire was actually my editor for my picture book. I don't know much about poetry. And so I'm always asking my guests here because I always want to get to know poetry better and learn how to read it. Well, I think maybe it's the way we're taught about poetry because we're sort of taught that there is some special way to read it. Like you, you're, there's some mystery to figure out or some, some like treasure at the bottom of the well. Um, I don't, I don't know that that's really true. I, I, Mm. I like reading poetry out loud because I find that it's really pleasant. It's enjoyable to listen to. And it also makes it so, I don't know about you, but I find like for me, I, I read a lot and I tend to read so quickly that I'm not necessarily hearing the sounds in my brain as I'm reading. It's more like I'm just, I'm getting the information so quickly and not noticing it. But with poetry, I, when I read it out loud, it's, it's sort of like a, like this experience somewhere between music and, and, uh, and a story. Right. And, and it's sort of, it's, it's something that can be so pleasant and easy. And I, and I hope that more people will give it a try because uh, it, it doesn't have to be an academic exercise, despite what our high school English teachers may have suggested. And isn't that weird that that that's so many people come out of school with that impression when in reality, like you said, it, it, it seems like it should be the opposite. Like it should be what we turn to when we have nothing else in us or when we're not only when we're looking for a challenge, but also when we, we don't have a lot of time, we don't have a lot of energy for a gigantic plot. Like you would think that if they really wanted us to read it, English teachers, (laughs) you would teach it as a source of comfort. Yeah, exactly. That's how, that's how I view it. Right. And it's the kind of comfort that can also open doors in your mind to places Mm -hmm. that you might not have traveled before. Or um, I found that writing poetry is the best way that I found to sort of express how it feels to live inside my own brain. Um, It's the clearest path to doing that, to sort of expressing what it feels like to me. And then when you read somebody's poem and maybe you can relate to that, that's a very exciting feeling. When you can recognize yourself in someone else's perceptions. To me, writing poetry is the hardest form of writing because it is so stripped and so essential. So I am fascinated that you said it's the clearest way. It feels like such self-awareness to say that writing poetry is the clearest way to you because it feels like you have to be a person who absolutely knows who you are to, to I, be a person. Yeah. And I think that's the work of that's the work of art or the work of that's the work of my art. That's the work of my poetry is digging deeper and deeper into myself and trying to express it as plainly and honestly and concisely as possible in a way that can get past um get past convention and be served directly mm-hmm. 
For more information on how to support this podcast, check out my Patreon. For about the cost of a latte, you can have access to all sorts of extra goodies. Every week you'll get exclusive interview clips with my guests that are only available to patrons. I also send out advance notice of the books we discuss, curated reading lists, my monthly reading wrap-ups including The Good, The Bad, and The DNFs, and essays about the reading life. Go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash best book ever to learn more about how you can help me keep the candles burning over here in my reading cave. Now back to the show. Do you remember how you first found Jane Eyre? I do. I do. Because I, I actually saw uh, the movie first a movie. Okay. Um, and I, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the 1983 adaptation of, of Jane Eyre with Timothy Dalton. No, <laughs> I have not. It is not good. Um, but you know what? I like him. He's Mr. Rochester. He, yes. He's, I, I don't hate that idea. He's like a little bit too, like a bit too handsome, I think, yeah. but it, it's um, anyway, it's not like a super fantastic adaptation it's too long it's you know the casting is weird everything's weird about it but we my mom and I well we I think we rented it this was a while ago we rented it from a place okay physical reality and brought it home and put it in a machine and watched it on the tv um and it I remember watching it and being like this is a bad movie why am I why am I so immersed? I am so immersed. I think I was 18 at the time, something like that. Um, and so we watched half of it and I went to work the next day. I was like, a, it was the summer I was working as a cashier and I spent the whole day thinking about it. Just like, I just, there was something in me, there was something in my psyche that was connecting to it on such a deep level. It didn't matter any of the, the strangenesses of the, of the movie itself. So I watched the rest of it and I was just, I was just obsessed. And that, and after that, I got the book, of course. And, and so this is not connected to school. You just read this book on your Mm -hmm. own steam. Yeah. Okay. So for my listeners who have not come across this book. How, how, what is the plot of this book? Okay. So the basic, the basic plot of Jane Eyre is there is a little girl who is living on the kindness of her aunt Reed in a, in a fancy estate with her cousins. Um, and she's very much disliked for reasons that are somewhat unclear, although it's, uh, it seems that um, she doesn't have any money and she's orphaned and she's everyone there is mean to her. She has a very difficult childhood. And then she's sent off to a school, um, a boarding school where there's not enough food or heat or anything like that. She makes her first friend there. Um, it's a strange plot. Sorry, I'll continue. So no, it's, this is exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a little bit weird. So yeah. she, she spends her adolescence in in this boarding school and then she wants to get away she doesn't most of the students who end up surviving through the school um and uh 
who graduate, they end up being teachers. She doesn't want to be there anymore. She advertises and then goes off to Thornfield Hall uh, to be a governess, which is just so romantic. Um, So she goes there, falls in love with the master of the house, Mr. Rochester. Um, And now we're getting into spoiler territory. (laughs) If that counts for I mean, the book was written in 1847. I have to assume that, honestly, if you don't know how this ends, this is on you, listener. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. And then so when she's at Thornfield Hall, which is sort of this, this like Gothic castle situation, um, there's, there's like a sense of like, is there a ghost there? There's some weird stuff going on. She and Rochester fall in love. He proceed, he's got some issues going on. He's a little bit toxic. He's manipulating her and making her think that he's in love with this, this woman named Blanche Ingram. And, uh, and she's very, anyway, drama and romance ensues. They become engaged and they're about to get married when turns out he has a wife in the attic um, no ghost, just, just a wife that he's keeping up there who is suffering from some like serious mental health issues and, uh, having a hard time. And then Jane runs off into Jane's like, nope, peace out. Like she's quiet. She doesn't yell. She doesn't freak. She just doesn't pack anything up, but she's like, she's like, okay, fleeing the place that night, even though Rochester is like, no, it's cool. We can just, we can go away. We can just shack up. It's fine. No biggie. We don't have to be like officially married. So she runs off into the wilderness and just like by, by sheer luck arrives in this little town and the first people, I, I can't remember, I don't know if it's the exact first person, but like the, basically the first people she runs into yeah. turn out to be her cousins who she didn't know existed. And she also, so she goes and she becomes a school teacher. She's still in love with Rochester from afar. It's very tragic, but she's, you know, she's making the life for herself. She's teaching. She inherits some money of her own. Um, and then uh, her old cousin, what's his face? Um, uh, Sinjin. Sinjin, yeah. <laughs> she has this this cousin who's very, uh, uh, very religious, very sort of uh, doing head movements to to show. He's, you know, he's he's very serious and not super fun. Um, and he wants her to go off and marry him and have sort of a loveless relationship. She's like, maybe, I don't know. I want to go back and see what's up with Mr. Rochester. Um, There's this psychic moment of maybe, maybe they connect over, over time and space. And she hears him calling for her. And then she goes, turns out there was a big fire at, at Thornfield Hall. His wife is now has now died in the fire um, and Mr. Rochester is like living in this little cottage and has less money and less, uh, he's, uh, I think he's, he's blind right at the end. Yes. yes. And, uh, and missing has, a hand and missing a hand. And then, so now they live, they, you know, they get back together, live happily ever after have babies. Part of his sight comes back and there we go. 
How did I do? That was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) If I had never heard of this book, I would for sure want to read it after hearing that description. It was perfect. Awesome. Awesome. So tell me what you... What do you think? Okay, I guess this is a two part question. What do you think you connected to so much when you were 18? And then after you answer that, I want to know like, why does it still grab you so much? Absolutely. Okay, well, I think what what grabs me to begin with when I was 18 was sort of what, what still stays with me was, which was that I really saw myself in Jane with the way that she engaged with the world, the way that she looked at things, um, the way that people reacted to her and also the way that Mr. Rochester reacted to her. Because when you're a very quiet, sort of mysterious person and people are like, what's your deal? What's what's going on with you? Sometimes, sometimes people can find that like, you know, attractive. And then sometimes there's this handsome man who suddenly is attractive, you know? And so when I was 18, I was like, oh, what a romantic story. It was like the most uh, amazing romantic story, right? I didn't understand at the time fully why she left. And I was a little bit like, and I, and I hand waved away so much of Mr. Rochester's toxic behavior. And I kind of wished, I was like, why didn't you just go off to your villa with like, oh, too bad. It was the olden times and you couldn't really do that. That's too bad. Like it was that kind of attitude, right? I, I blamed it entirely on the societal element of, of her not wanting to, to live in sin or whatever. Yeah. Now... I view it differently in that regard. Um, and I see, and like reading it in my thirties is, is much different reading it in my thirties. I'm not hand waving away the toxicity of Rochester. And I recognize the, the allure of someone looking at you and being like, Oh, you're so special and mysterious. And, and also how that can be dehumanizing in a way. Right. When you, when you can't necessarily be all that you are, you can only be what, what is acceptable to the person who has more power in the relationship. And I see her running off and, and having to create her own life before she can truly have a, a, a healthy partnership. Uh, that makes total sense to me. Um, but I think the biggest thing was funnily enough, like I actually ended up being, um, diagnosed with, uh, with like with autism and ADHD in my early, in my early, early thirties. And, um, at that point I was like, I wonder about Jane Eyre. And I Googled Jane Eyre and lo and behold, all these academic articles pop up analyzing Jane Eyre as a potentially autistic character written before that diagnosis was really a thing. And then it was like, it was like, oh my God, I recognized something. I recognized that like something in her that was in me when I first read this book. And and ever since then, she's been kind of like my patron saint of neurodivergence, even though that's like 
that that's, you know, it's my read and, and there are other ways to, an, to analyze the book. There are other ways to look at it, but ever since then, I've been, been like, she's my, she's my girl, you know? And I, and I felt like Charlotte Bronte being, you know, uh, very intelligent and, and, and reclusive enough to want to write a book like this and writing perhaps based on her own perspective in the world, writing this first person novel, maybe she was on the spectrum too and didn't realize. And, and, and it's like this time traveling connection of, of neurodivergence and imagination between me and her and Jane Eyre. Can you tell me some incidences that would indicate to you neurodivergence in Jane Eyre? Sure. Yeah. Well, I was just, I was just rereading like the, especially the childhood section recently. I was was struck by how much of the pain of her childhood comes from, comes from missed connection and misunderstanding. Do you notice that? Like how the, the adults, she seems to be for the most part doing what she's expected to do everyone's mad at her and everyone's very, very disturbed by her, but we don't get a sense of like, is she doing something bad? For the most part, she's just, she's reading. She's just hanging out. She's like trying to to carve out some space for herself in this family where she's so isolated. Um, And, and then in the moments when she actually, she expresses herself the adults are surprised and actually warm in certain instances. Like she's, you know, they're like, Oh, you're suddenly expressing yourself. And yeah. So I realized like, it's so strange because when I read Jane Aaron and and it's so much, it's, it's so much internal, internal diet, like a monologue. Right. Mm -hmm. It felt, it just seems so normal to me. (laughs) She just seems, I was like, Oh, you're just like, you're like me. This yeah. is so well-written. This is the way an ordinary person is, you know, just like me. That is a magical reading of it. And I feel like it absolutely unlocks her. That's how I felt. Absolutely. How many times have I missed that is what I wonder now. Right. And then you think about like, who are these women who are writing in time, in times when it's not socially acceptable to be writing and it takes a lot of time and be, and doing the stuff of, of societal cultural motherhood in those times was so overwhelming. Like it, I, I just, I don't know. I think probably, who else would be doing it? Who else would be doing it? You're like, I just, and as a person on the spectrum, I'm always, I'm like, oh, they're on the spectrum, totally on the spectrum. But in this case, I'm like, <laughs> there, there must be like an overrepresentation of women on the spectrum who ended up being authors in these times and places where it was not typical. So tell me about what you think of Mr. Rochester then. And then your opinion, how I guess your opinion of him has changed once you understand Jane differently. I read Mr. Rochester as the first time that Jane encounters another human being who, even if he doesn't necessarily look at the world the same way that she does, he looks into her and wants to know how she looks at the world. And so they have this this connection, which feels like... For me, when I've encountered another another autistic person in a in a room for of neurotypical people, 
it can feel like you look over and you're like, oh, you're here too. There's another, there's another person here. You know, everyone, they're all people, but it's like, oh, like we are here looking at, we're experiencing this experience in a similar way. And I wonder if that is the intoxication for Jane after a lifetime of so much neglect and, and, and just misunderstanding, like just the inability to be understood. And I don't even think she, she, I, I don't even think she understood that she was misunderstood in that. Well, she does, but, but I don't know if she really fully feels the extent of that wound until suddenly there's a person there who's looking at her and asking her questions. Which is so fascinating to contrast him with Sinjin, her cousin, who on paper looks like the right answer for her. Solid, safe, conventional. Nobody could criticize that as her choice of a life partner. Mm-hmm. Except she knows that he, that Mr. Rochester is the one who paid attention to her. She looks at him and, and and like perceives him to such a level, like she doesn't look at him and think like, oh, you're so great and no worries about that other stuff. She sees him as a whole person with a lot of problems. Um, and obviously she has boundaries, you know, strangely enough, she comes out of, out of school um, with just such a loyalty to herself and an integrity. Um, that I think she really is the perfect person for him. I think what you just said about her loyalty to herself was precisely what I have always missed about this book. Cause I always said, I do not get the appeal of Jane Eyre. I've never gotten it. Uh, I will tell you the exact passage that got to me this time that made me go, Oh my God. And it's exactly what you just said about her loyalty to herself. And he's trying to convince her to live with him even though, you know, I've got my wife up in the attic, but it's fine. You'll just be my mistress. Yeah, no worries. No worries. And he says to her, it would not be wicked to love me. And she says it would to obey you. And I went, yes, Whoa, Jane. Amen. And then later on, she says, I care for myself. There I plant my foot. This was the first time since, and I, the first time I read this book was in college. And this was the first time that I noticed that line and went, Oh my God, she is not a doormat. Yeah. I've always seen her as a doormat. I was so wrong. She's so strong, like unbelievably strong in the face of, it's strange because in some ways the, the big decision she makes to leave is going along with social convention in that she's like, I don't want to be a mistress, but I feel like it's deeper than that it's not for her about like oh people would look at me a different way or people yes. wouldn't I wouldn't be taken seriously or whatever it wasn't about that it was like he, she knew she, it's like she could see that it what it just it wasn't the right thing it wasn't the right thing and he couldn't make it right by hand waving she feels out of place almost everywhere she is she's already shown us that she gets her not awkwardness is the right word because I don't think she ever feels awkward but she's shown us that she doesn't care what other people think but she cares very much what she thinks of herself 
that's what stops her. And, and that's what she gets from in the first part of the book where she makes friends at Lowood school, the boarding school with, with Helen Burns, her friend who teaches her how to take care of herself. Yeah. And there's a very simplistic reading of this. I think that it's a Christian morality ch- tale. And I, that makes me angry too, because I don't think, I don't think her rejection with him of, of Mr. Rochester has anything to do with sex out of wedlock. I, I think agree. she is genuinely going, yeah, if it were the right thing, I would do it, but it's not the right thing. This would not fit with my soul mm-hmm. until you clean up your house, Mr. Rochester. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's, it's not the right thing. And I think she was angry too, that he was pushing her mm-hmm. because if, she, if he truly knew her as well as he claimed to, then he would know that she always has to do what is the right thing in her own integrity. And he was using that kind of like his social power to be like, Oh, it's okay. Cause I can pay for us to have a villa far away. And, and you don't have any relatives to worry. Like, it'll be fine. Jacqueline, I have to thank you until now. I have misunderstood this book completely. Wow. That's, that's a, <laughs> Well, I hope that what I'm saying is makes sense. It's my, it's my, it's my vision of her and that steel, you know, that like, like, I feel like that is partially a gift of like, for me, when I, when I think about myself as a person on the, on the spectrum, I, I think like, well, that is what I, what I want to have, like that, that extra strength against, so uh, against the pressures of social, social convention, the pressures of, trying to be like everybody else. It's never been very important to me and it clearly isn't very important to Jane, but I'm so glad I found her. Is this a book you reread frequently? Not frequently, but I do watch the 2006 Toby Stevens and Bruce Wilson uh, adaptation very frequently. I've probably seen that movie 25 times. It was the BBC adaptation. It was my favorite one. This is the definitive one for me. It's the Jacqueline DeForge definitive edition. Okay. (laughs) Is it a movie or is it a series version of it? Uh, It's like a BBC mini mini series. Okay. So good. I think I've seen one with Mia. What? I don't know her last name. Wasikowski. She's got a really long. Is that a bad one? I didn't like that one. Okay. It was very short. I wouldn't like if you have already read the book or watched other adaptations. Yeah, but it it cut out so much that I would be confused about the plot, I think, okay. if I didn't know the book. Yeah. And then do you as a Jane Eyre fan, do you follow all of the other twists and turns that modern writers have done with this work. You know, there are so many more books about the woman up in the attic and um, the white Sargasso Sea. And there have been so many fictional takes on mainly on the life of Bertha, the Mm -hmm. wife. Do you pay attention to that kind of thing? Yeah. I read white Sargasso Sea multiple times and I think, oh my God, that book is a true, very much a poetic a poetic work, just a beautiful, beautiful work of fiction. And, and I think there's, there's obviously a lot of room there to, uh, to try to talk about the, the under, like 
there's so many like colonial and racist underpinnings to that aspect mm-hmm. of the book, right? Um, with regards to Bertha. Um, I and yeah, obviously. So there it's I'm so glad that writers have been diving into that and exploring those aspects in their imagination. Because obviously, you know, Charlotte Bronte was writing at a particular vantage point, uh, and there's stuff there clearly that needs to be talked about. So when this book, which which is sort of a um, foundational book in your life, but it doesn't exist, it's not encased in glass. You're really willing to see what others do with the story and interpretations and that kind of thing. For sure. And it's not perfect. It's it's a work of art. And I see it as sort of like a time capsule of um, this this person, you know, this writer, this woman writer in this other time who, who had her own struggles and challenges. And, um, I feel like it's, you know, it's what she wrote this and left it. Now I'm reading it and and writing my own stuff. It doesn't mean that, you know, like if somebody finds my work in, in a couple hundred years or reads it, I don't want them to be like, well, that's perfect. You know, I'm a, just a human. And so is Charlotte Bronte. Who do you recommend this book to? Like, have you successfully passed it off to other people? Because it's a book that intimidates a lot of readers. I don't know that I've ever recommended it to anybody. It's been like, I have such a personal relationship with it that I don't, I don't know that, or maybe because it's so thick too, that I'm like, this this would be, this is a big assignment if you, if you aren't into it. But I would say like, if you have, if you have any sort of like little sensation of interest to like, like there is so much there, especially, especially for anyone who's neurodivergent, because I think it can be really fascinating to, to look at it through that lens and, and see like, oh, this is strangely familiar for something that was written a very long time ago. I listened to it on audio and I thought, this is oddly short for such a long book. Well, of course, when I finished it, I realized I was listening to an abridged one. But I was on an eight-hour road trip, and I listened to it in one gulp. And when when it got to that line, there I plant my foot, I burst into tears. Isn't that... And I was going, what is happening to me? I hate this book. I've always hated this book. And it made me come home... And I I picked up my old copy from college and I read through it. Uh, What I'm going to do going forward is if anybody ever expressed interest, I'm going to say, listen to the abridged audio where you get the picture. Mm -hmm. It is so skillfully done because the audio gets to the important, the essentials. This is the story of a woman who figures herself out and does not deviate. Reading is fun, eh? I love it. (laughs) Reading is so fun. So tell me, what are you reading right now? This book is called Wild Milk Stories by Sabrina Ora Mark. I just started it, so I don't have that much to say yet, but it's so magical. And um, the stories are so short and poetic that I think if you're a person who... um, you know, wants to dive into poetry, is a little nervous about it, or maybe wants to start with some poetic short fiction, it might be a good start. And it's, it's quite 
it's quite magical. All right. I'm going to look it up. Will you tell my listeners where they can find you and your work? Yes, absolutely. Um, So my name is Jacqueline DeForge, which is a little complicated to spell. But if you go to nestandstory.com, that's my website. And there's links there to get my books or visit me on Instagram or Twitter. Those are mostly the places where I hang out these days in my own home. Super. Yeah. In our home. We're all just hanging out. Yeah. Just hanging out. (laughs) Yeah. This has been lovely talking to you. I hope you will come back anytime you want to talk books with me. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening, bookworms. For more information on this episode and links to all the books we discussed, go to our website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at bestbookeverpodcast. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and you can find me everywhere as Julie Wrote a Book. Remember, I'm looking for guests from all walks of life to tell me about books from all genres. If you have a book you want to talk about, go to juliewroteabook.com and click on the button that says, Be a Guest on the Best Book Ever. Thanks for joining me today, and I will see you at the library. I might not be all that bright now that I think about it.